We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to Ezekiel 45. We're going to see the um, divine version of urban planning here. Okay, The divine version. That's a uh, popular subject in the last, oh, say generation or two, urban planning. Chapter 45, Ezekiel. Moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of the land. Its length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. It shall be holy throughout its territory all around. How many urban planners do you know that care to leave a place for God? Of this, the text says, there shall be a square plot for the sanctuary, 500 by 500 rods, with 50 cubits around it for an open space. So this is the district you shall measure, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide. It shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. Now, if you're picturing, trying to picture this in your mind, think of the existing Israel a little bit reformulated for the millennial kingdom. And this is going to be a strip of land right across, not quite the middle, but almost the middle. Uh, There's going to be several, five tribes, I think, to the south, seven to the north, and then this strip of land in the middle, which is set apart for the holy district for the Lord. Verse 4, it shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary who come near to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple. They shall have 20 chambers as a possession. You shall appoint as the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 cubits long adjacent to the district of the holy section. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. The prince shall have a section on one side and the and the other of the holy district and the city's property, and bordering on the holy district and the city's property, extending westward on the west side and eastward on the east side. The length shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west border to the east border. The land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, Now we're on a different subject here. Enough, O princes of Israel, remove violence and plundering, execute justice and righteousness, and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. You shall have honest scales, an honest ephah, and an honest bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure, so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer, and the ephah one-tenth of a homer. Their measure shall be according to the homer." The shekel shall be 20 geras, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, and 15 shekels shall be your mina. This is the offering which you shall offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat and one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley. 
the ordinance concerning oil. The bath of oil is one-tenth of a bath from a core. A core is a homer or ten baths, for ten baths are a homer. Now, this sounds like strange to us because we're not accustomed to the measurements. I'm sure if it was in bushels and gallons and things, we'd be more accustomed to it. But you notice that God is concerned about uh, the economic system, uh, cheating, false scales or false weights, and uh, those, those are very devastating to the ongoing of an economy and the trust of the people one for another. So he's going to straighten that all out there in Israel during this time. Verse 15, And one lamb shall be given from a flock of 200 from the rich pastures of Israel. These shall be for grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement for them, says the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel. Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. Now notice, please, it says it's the prince's part to give these offerings. When was that the case under the Old Testament law? that a prince was giving off, no, no prince. There was a separation, actually, of, of the ruling function from the religious function, if I could say it that way. Uh, you know, say uh, King Uzziah uh, goes into the, what happens to him when he goes into the temple to do something? Or uh, Saul, when he gives an offering apart from uh, the prophet Samuel, bad news. But here we have, there must be a change in the law. And we know there's going to be a change in the law because Psalm 110 says there's going to be a, pre, a priest forever according to the order of, not Leviticus, or Leviticus, Levi, but of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. So there has to be a change in the law. Hebrews reasons from that text that way to show to the Jewish people that there has to be a change in the law. It's divinely ordained that there would be a change in the law. Another evidence of it here. Verse 18, Thus says the Lord God in the first month, on the first day of the month you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. Here again, uh, sacrifices during the millennium. 19, The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, on the gateposts of the gate of the inner court. And so uh, you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance. Thus you, you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten, and on that day the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. Now remember in Hebrews it tells us that the uh, animal sacrifices were effective for the cleansing of the flesh. This is the external matters, but they did not take away sin finally, and these will be the same. They will be for uh, ceremonial uncleanness and for external matters, if you will, but not for the internal washing away of sin. That's only by the blood of Christ. On the, th on the seven days of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams without blemish, daily for seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah for each bull and one ephah for each ram together with a hint of oil for each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month at the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days according to the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. 
May God bless that reading of his word. And hopefully we've got just a little bit more understanding now after reading and, and thinking about those things. We're going to turn our Bibles again this morning to Matthew's Gospel and carry on with where we left off last time, Matthew chapter 21. We have seen Jesus' authority was questioned, which gave us a great opportunity to ask ourselves, what is our authority in life? Is it ourself? Is it science? Is it medicine? Is it the Word of God? Is it God himself through his word? Those last two being one and the same, of course. And then we uh, looked at the short uh, parable of two young men who were asked by their father to go and work in his vineyard. Mm -hmm. And it's a very easy story to understand. Uh, Two young men asked by their father to work. One says, I'm not going to do it. But then he repented, and he went. And then the other very politely said he would go, but then he rebelled. And so I have called that the polite rebelling son as opposed to the impolite obedient son. We used this as a way of asking ourselves, have we exercised true repentance in our hearts, or have we just... Uh, yada, yada, talked so much about it in our lives. Uh, the fellow who said, I will go, sir, illustrated the scribes and the Pharisees who claimed to be religious. And the Lord used this as an as a application point to them and said, Assuredly, I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you do. Now this, as I said on Wednesday night last, was the most shocking statement that the Lord could make to these people. They thought there was no way on earth that anybody would get into heaven before them, much less tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and Gentiles and Roman soldiers and all of those who, many of whom went to John the Baptist and and asked him, what are we to do? And John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they initially in their lives were like the first son. They didn't do what God wanted them to do, but later they repented and they would be entering into the kingdom. And it says, interestingly, John came to you in the way of righteousness. I'm looking at verse 32 there. That way of righteousness is the way which we talked about on Wednesday, which is the way of imputed righteousness. The way of righteousness, we don't have righteousness in ourselves, but God grants it to us by gift, by imputation. That's the mechanism, if you will. He imputes it to our account, reckons it as if it's ours through Jesus Christ, and then treats us that way so that we can be said to be constituted as righteous before him. And these tax collectors and sinners came. This is just exactly like the story about the two men who went up to the temple to pray. One a tax collector, the other a Pharisee. The tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven. He was so remorseful about his sin, and he knew that he was a terrible sinner. And the Lord said, this man went down to his house justified. He called out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Of course, God has had mercy on sinners. 
He has displayed the mercy on sinners upon the cross, which you can't see all of behind me there because of the, the uh, way that that is covered with the vacation Bible school stuff. But you know, that's, he has had mercy on us, and we are so grateful for that. He came in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Either, you know, the Lord, is, the Lord Jesus is saying, you have opportunity. The door has been opened for you to re- have remorse and think, oh, I shouldn't have said that to God. I shouldn't have acted that way. I should turn my uh, approach around and I should get right with the Lord. You have that opportunity. While, the, while it's still called today, today is the day of salvation. We implore you, we ask you, we invite you to follow that way of righteousness. And in the end, what was most shocking about this to the religious leaders then was this. The Lord said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And here, that was in Matthew 5, verse 20. And in fact, he also said, Uh, You have to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you to have any hope to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, these folks are entering into the kingdom of heaven before you. In other words, the tax collectors and the sinners have a righteousness which does exceed that of the the Pharisees and the scribes. How? Because it's the imputed righteousness of God that we just talked about that's accounted to those tax collectors and sinners, which is far greater than the mere external religious works that the Pharisees and the scribes do. That's how their uh, righteousness was a scribal exceeding righteousness. Well, all of that brings us to the parable that's called often the wicked vine dressers. And they're, they're kind of connected because in the first story that I've been just telling here, the the, the father comes to the two sons and says, go and work in my vineyard. And then the Lord uses a vineyard parable again. Often the Bible refers to the nation of Israel as a vineyard. God comes to the vineyard in Isaiah expecting good fruit, and what does he find? Rot. He finds no good fruit. And so the likeness of Israel to a vineyard would be unmistakable to them. To the, to the religious leaders, hear the parable. The Lord says, in fact, he opens it that way. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So this guy, is, he's done his capital project. He's, he's put in the durable goods. He's put in the machinery, the wine press. He has everything there. It's protected by a, a hedge around it and so on. He leases it out because now it's ready to go and he wants to go and and work on some other ventures. So when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. You know, I'm just, just wondering, by what law do they think that they're going to get away with that? You can't just kill the landowner and suddenly the title 
of the land moves into your column, into your name, what do they think? They're lawless people. That's what they are. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. That's what they did to the son. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Well, what do you think he'll do to those vine dressers? Let me ask, what would you do to those vine dressers? If there was a distributed system of executing justice and you were the next next of kin, if you will, or the father to that son who was murdered, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. Absolutely. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And is it marvelous in our eyes? Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Verse 45. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Both the, the parable of the two sons going to the vineyard and then this other vineyard parable here. When they sought, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. Well, there we are. The landowner did his preparatory work, leased it out, went on another venture. When it was time to get his return on investment, he was supposed to get money from them or at least wine, I guess, or uh, what the, you know, the fruit of the vine in some form, whatever their agreement was. They had a bilateral covenant. They had a contract that was binding on both parties. I don't know if the contract said anything about what the consequences would be if they didn't obey him, but I'll tell you this. The Old Testament had a contract in it. It's called the Law of Moses, and that contract did have blessings for obedience, and it also had terms for what happens if there's disobedience. However, the vine dressers reneged on their terms. They beat some of the servants, killed some of the servants, stoned some of the servants. Mark's gospel tells them that this happened one after the other. He sent a servant, he sent another one, he sent another one, one after the other. You're getting the picture here of how this is just like the history of the nation of Israel. We'll see that in a moment. Um, the shameful treatment of these, of these people. Many servants suffered similar fates. Finally, the landowner, acting very patiently and graciously, sent his son, the direct heir of all that was there in the vineyard. We would judge that to be naive, wouldn't we? Sometimes God's graciousness is so much that we begin to think, boy, this is too much. He thought that they would respect his son and realize that he really meant business now. But sinful people and gracious people don't often get along very well because the sinful ones take advantage of the gracious ones, right? That's what's happening here in this situation. The vine growers responded as their evil minds would naturally do in a way that reckoned on how they could turn this situation into their selfish benefit. So they killed the son and thought, we'll steal the vineyard. 
entirely for ourselves and be done with the terms of this contract. We'll have everything for ourselves. They were greedy, and greed drove them to murder. Couldn't they just be happy with the agreement that they made? Jesus enlists the aid of the audience now to draw a conclusion about what would happen. Very naturally, when he asked them what should happen to these people, the uh, whoever answers admits that the owner will come and destroy the wicked farmers and make a contract with a new group of people who will fulfill their obligations and be more faithful to what they're supposed to do. Now, we would say, well, he should have done that earlier. But what delayed him? His great patience. How many servants would you send to get your return on investment before you said enough is enough? One. God sent Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Nathan the prophet, and Samuel, David, Solomon, all messengers of God, um, Micah, can I go on? Malachi, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Habakkuk, all these ones. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah. Did I say Nahum? Well, Nahum's kind of a prophet to the northern, to the, uh, to the Ninevites. We looked at him recently. But all of these guys, one after the other. You shed the blood of Zechariah in the temple courts. So the answer is obvious. Uh, you know, these people deserve severe punishment. There's nothing else that can be done to satisfy justice. When they are murderers, what does the Bible say? Those who shed man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Now, there's a little bit of a question here as to who exactly answered Jesus' inquiry. The audience primarily consisted of the religious leaders, we read in verses 23 and also verse 45, but there could be some doubt in your mind as to whether they would offer such a self-incriminating answer, given their understanding that he was speaking the parable against them, and he had spoken the previous one against them. So perhaps you know, they were there and gathered around watching were a crowd of people, and somebody, you know, some smarty pants in the crowd said, I know what he'll do. He'll destroy them miserably. And then in the other gospel accounts, the Lord reiterates that answer, I think maybe repeating it for the sake of the, of the crowd, for everybody to hear it. Um, but whatever, it, it, it's possible that before the application of these parables dawned on the darkened minds of the Pharisees, that they themselves offered their fleshly response. We'd get them. And only later did they recognize that they were speaking those words against themselves. In Luke 20, in the version there, the Pharisees put in their own two cents and contradicted the Lord's conclusion about the judgment on the tenant farmers. You know, the, the conclusion was they're going to be destroyed, and they said, certainly not. By then they've realized that they can't answer the question the way it's obviously supposed to be answered because they'll be speaking against themselves. They couldn't stand the idea that Jesus was telling them they were so wrong as to merit divine retribution. We see the same response today when people at the top of their lungs shout for the right to kill a baby. Wow. 
They pout when the law is enforced upon their ill behavior. That's the sinner's mindset. It's, it's societally unworkable. You see the anarchy that results even in our own land as things progress from bad to worse. It's wrong before God, and it's certainly vexing to the people of God that you can just have this kind of lawless attitude that just roams the countryside. That's the work of the devil. He likes to kill and to maim and to destroy. Well, it's fairly obvious that the landowner is a picture of God the Father. The servants are the prophets. The landowner's son is Jesus. The vine dressers or the tenant farmers here represent the Pharisees and the chief priests. They're the leaders of the vineyard, the vineyard being the nation. They're the religious leaders calling the shots in the vineyard so they think, but they're doing so apart from the approval of the owner. You see, they came in and they thought, we own the place now. And they didn't realize, no, God owns the place. A manifestation of that was the temple which they had turned into a house of merchandise, a den of thieves, and the Lord comes in there and says, no, this is a house of prayer to the Father for all nations, not not your place of business. You don't own this building. It is God who is the owner of it. The lessons of the parable grow out of of two things, really. One, the extreme kindness of the owner. Why is he so patient? Why not after Isaiah, didn't he just blow the whole thing up and start over? In fact, he suggested that to Moses, didn't he? On a time or two. I'll just start over, Moses, with you, and we'll raise up a new nation. These people are stiff-necked and beyond repair. The extreme kindness of the owner and the extreme wickedness of the tenants are what drive the lessons of this parable. We see the, the, the emphasis in this parable to the point that we ask, how could the landowner be so naive to think that the farmers are going to do what they're supposed to do? And how could the farmers be so wicked? How could they be so evil? The first lesson we learn is that God is exceedingly gracious. Over a lengthy period of time, he sent his servants to the nation to minister to it and to receive its fruit. Now, what would its fruit be? Well, its fruit would be praise to God, like the kids sang this morning. You know, they, they, they sang, in effect, let's use our bodies to praise God. That's what God's given those bodies to us for. Let us use that. So he wanted to receive fruit from the nation. He, he sent the prophets to warn the people of impending doom unless they turned back to him. The prophets encouraged repentance, worship, teaching of the word of God, And God's kindness in these ways was repaid with abuse and murder. I mean, think of how they treated Jeremiah. He preaches the truth to them, the king and all those around him. They lower him down into a pit in one of the instances there, lock him in the stocks in another instance. Then they have to drag him up out of the mire, his friends anyway, not the people that put him there. But how, how do you treat a man who is called by God like that, in that way. Their hands are dirty with sin against the prophet of God. God is also gracious toward you, just like he was gracious toward the nation of Israel. God's grace toward the nation of Israel is a picture of his grace toward you. He's waited a long time for some of us. 
He waited a long time for some of us before we were born again. He's still waiting for many, even some in our own number here, to come to him in faith, to turn away from their sin. God is extremely, exceedingly gracious. The second key point we're reminded of is that Jesus came and died like the owner's son in the story. God arranged the circumstances so that from the viewpoint of the world, the death of Jesus was, well, to the righteous, an unjust act of wicked tenant farmers. To those who are religious people like the Pharisees, they were like, this is good, this blasphemer's gone. But that act, that unjust act, was used to implement a much more important thing, and that is the thing of salvation. And that was not the end of Jesus. He rose again and extends an offer of forgiveness to people who, like the wicked farmers, treated him, mistreated him before. His graciousness extends beyond measure. Jesus Christ came and died in that grace for sinners just like yourself. Now, can you imagine that for a moment? The son comes to the vine dressers and they kill him. But in so doing, they don't recognize that his death could be, if they believe in him, their benefit of eternal life. Why would he die for wicked vine dressers? What grace. But there comes a point at which God's grace, we remind ourselves, is completed. The third lesson, God's wrath will be manifested eventually. His patience, I say in my notes here, his patience runs out. I thought about that when I was reading it again this morning, and I thought, you know, I wonder if that's not the best way to say it. I think you get the idea from that. But does God's patience ever really run out like he becomes impatient? Not really. What happens is that his patience meets up with his justice And they have to have an agreement between each other, if you will. There's no conflict in God. But at some point, patience ends and justice begins. The implementation of that justice is what I'm talking about. And so it's not so much maybe that his patience runs out, but that his patience has run its course up until the time he's decided, which is decreed for justice to be given to those people to whom deserve that justice. And so the end of the parable points out the landowner will destroy the wicked tenants. This is pictured a picture of final judgment. They will be destroyed miserably. Uh, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Uh, All those that don't abide in the vine are cut off, gathered up, dried up, burned in the fire. Not a good thing. Okay, anytime there's burning with fire, In these contexts, it does not mean like everything will turn out okay. That's destruction. That's different than a purifying fire. Okay, That's a destructive fire. Picturing judgment of God against his people, against not his people, his, well, his people, Israel, yeah, but uh, not his saved people. And their farm, their vineyard will be leased out to others who will follow the contract. And so What the Lord says, um, where is it? It will be given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Uh, This, um, 
applies directly to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. It also applies to any religious leaders who lead God's people astray and harm God's messengers. Uh, They will be assigned the same portion as these ones here. Now, let me mention, too, um, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of, yeah, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The agreement that was made with the farmers is like the law of Moses. Okay, are you with me? It was a bilateral uh, agreement. Of course, it was given by the sovereign. There was no, like, democratic input about what the law is going to look like and all of that. It was given directly from God, but it had a two-way kind of operation to it. And Deuteronomy 28 talks about the blessings and the cursings. You're familiar with that. A number of other passages in Old Testament Scripture give that as well. But the people broke the covenant, so God treated them according to the negative terms of it, the curses. And then worse than that, they killed the messengers of God who were sent with the purpose of expressing God's desire for them to turn from sin and also then be delivered from his judgment. This is just like what we talked about with Jonah. Remember Jonah? He went gave a message of judgment. That message of judgment was actually a message of grace because it warned them from that which is to come. So you see how a message of judgment, somebody might say, you know, I was thinking about preaching... Uh, Nahum today. And I said, no, I don't feel like it's the right time for that right now. But I could preach Nahum, and there are four sections in that book that show the grace of God. But the rest of the three chapters are all judgment, judgment, judgment. And somebody could go out of the church if I preach that and say, boy, there's no, ju- there's no grace there. There's just judgment. Yeah, but what does judgment cause you to reflect on? And then the announcement of judgment is itself a mercy. It's not like it's, you come to the end of your life and you realize, oh no, I wish I would have known. If somebody had just told me that there's eternal consequences for my sin, if I just was told that I could believe in Jesus and be saved, if I was just told, you have been told. We have been told. We have, and so we appeal to you, God, help us to listen, even to the messages of judgment, which in themselves are mercy. It's not like it's hidden information or proprietary or anything like that. So we're reminded of a fourth lesson by this, namely that obeying God's word is the best and right way to live. We're also reminded of a fifth lesson, And this we often forget as believers, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And we somehow, I say we forget because we somehow, you know, kind of shake our heads and expect, you know, when you look at the news or whatever and you hear what's going on in the world, you say, don't those people know better? No, they don't. They're lost in darkness. Only God can know the heart. But we recognize and we've been told that it is desperately wicked. People do desperately evil things to one another. People will often get everything out they can out of a situation without regard for God, without regard for private property, without regard for health, even without regard for the life of others. They run around like animals killing each other. Selfishness and pride. People are desperately wicked. Don't be surprised when they act that way. 
Pray for them. And don't say to yourself, well, that's too much. I, I, can't, I can't share the gospel with those people. Those are the very people that need it. They are the very people who need it. Well, the application of the story continues to the audience. Jesus asked them if they ever read the scriptures and understood what they read, like Psalm 118. This is the same psalm that was earlier quoted when the young people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. When he entered Jerusalem, the religious leaders were mad about this proclamation. The stone, though, that the Lord mentions is mentioned there in, in the psalm, the stone which the builders rejected. Okay, this, the tenant farmers rejected him, uh, rejected the son, and the son in this parable is the same as the stone in the psalm. Okay, they rejected the stone that was destined to become the chief cornerstone. I guess that's kind of an interesting picture. If you were a stonemason and you know you were say you were an expert stonemason and some understudy or a bunch of understudies have gone through the quarry and they have just they have just they've walked past this one stone. They, they just reject it, reject it, reject it. And you walk past, who is responsible for the final building project, and you see that stone and you say, hey, guys, why didn't you mark this one to take? And they say, well, that's worthless. But in your eye, you can see that's exactly the perfect stone to be the corner for this magnificent building that you are doing. The builders rejected it. But the father sent the son the stone which was rejected by the builders, and he became the chief cornerstone. And the people outside are looking in and saying, how is this? How can this be? It's marvelous in their eyes. Well, the vineyard is likened to the kingdom of God. Jesus says that it will be taken from them and given to someone else. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. So they've rejected the stone. This is why, this is like integral to the flow of the book of Matthew. Matthew, John the Baptist comes, Jesus comes, offers the kingdom. If you repent, what happened? They rejected him. They commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They continue to reject him, continue, continue, continue. By now, it's clear they're not going to receive him. The stone has been rejected. The stone is about to be, the son is about to be killed. And so the Lord says, we're going to take the kingdom and we're going to give it to somebody else. Now, um, most, I think, people today take it that this means that he's going to give it to the church. That's not what that means. It means that he's going to take it from this existing nation of Israel and he's going to give it to a future version of that same nation which is obedient to him. Romans 11, 25 to 27, what does that say? It says, out of, out of uh, Zion will come a deliverer. He will turn uh, Jacob from sin, and all Israel will be saved. And so that future edition of the nation will be the one who will receive the kingdom. Now, that's not to say the church is completely disconnected from the kingdom. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that although we were far from the promises of God, aliens from the household of God, we've been brought near to those promises. And so we too are going to be citizens. We are already actually, if we're saved, citizens in that kingdom and we'll be joined together with the people of Israel and rule and reign with Christ during that millennial kingdom and then on into 
the eternal state. So don't read nation equals church. Okay? It's going to be taken away from you people and given to a version of your nation, a later edition of it, which is going to be responsive to the things of God. Chief priests and Pharisees didn't like that. They knew that Jesus was speaking about them. And so, you know, not, not even they missed the point. Interesting, isn't it? They understood they were like the lying son, or what I called the polite rebel. They said they, would, they said they were with God, but they weren't. Their hearts were far from him. They were like the tenant farmers. They were like the builders who rejected the, the stone, condemned in all of Jesus' parables here. They hated him all the more, and they wanted to kill him. But they had a problem. You see the problem? They feared the multitudes. Earlier, they feared the people so they wouldn't say that John the Baptist was not a prophet. So they were chicken to actually say what they believed. So not only they, they don't fear God, they actually feared the people. They wouldn't throw John the Baptist under the bus for the sake of the crowd. Now they don't want to kill Jesus for the same reason. So they had to find a way to get at him that didn't involve the crowd. They were 180 degrees out of phase with what God wanted. He wanted them to fear God and not people, but they feared people and not God. And since the popular opinion was that Jesus was a prophet, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? All the healings that he did and the messages that he preached, they didn't want an, upri- an uprising against them, the leaders, so they, uh, they didn't want to throw their influence away, so they had to figure out some politically correct way to, to do this. Uh, and they did. By any means necessary, they, they had that philosophy. Well, what else can we say? We've already addressed the matter of the uh, people entering into the kingdom before, the Pharisees who would not enter. Um, the parable of the vine dressers mention, ends with a mention of the kingdom of God, say, saying it will be taken from the present leadership of Israel and turned over to a nation that bears the fruit of it. Such a nation should show forth the fruits of repentance, as John the Baptist called for, and it would render to the owner the service that was due him, honor, worship, and the like that the vine dressers should have given to their landowner. And so we end today with another question. We began with the question, do you love God in our Lord's table service? If you didn't, weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go listen to that message or, uh, on, or watch it on the YouTube uh, channel. But we started with the question, do you love God? We end with the question, what fruits are you bringing to the landowner of the universe? What fruits are you bringing to the landowner of the universe? He is the guy who's in charge, and he's laid out the terms and conditions. Are you obeying those terms and conditions? I pray yes. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts today. Simple parable, profound lessons. Take them and factor them into our consciences so that we will have our consciences informed, our minds informed, our hearts stirred, so that we would seek to love you with all of our hearts and Render to you the fruits that are due at their appropriate season. In Jesus' name, amen.